Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. All right, go ahead and pull out your Bible to John 7. If you've been with us longer than just this most recent series, Hope 2020, you know that we are slowly working our way through an entire book of the Bible. If you're new to church, it's called the Gospel of John. And when we call it a gospel, what we mean by that is it's an account of Jesus' life, betrayal, death, and resurrection. And it's specifically an account. It's not a history trying to record every detail. It's an account that is specifically trying to tell the reader he was the promised Messiah. He was the promised Jewish Messiah. He fulfilled all that the Old Testament told us he would be. And he is offering salvation to the world, anybody who would believe in him. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four of those that are found in the Bible, the first four books of the New Testament. John 7, so about one-third of the way into the book, Uh, We are going to pick it up at verse 25, because that's where we left off before Hope 2020. This series I'm entitling, Divided Crowd, Undivided Savior. You're going to see every single week, as whoever it is gets up here to preach, you're going to see over and over again, the people who are around Jesus are battling back and forth inside their own minds and inside their own hearts, going, is Jesus Messiah? Is he a a liar and 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 a farce? What is he? The crowd is divided over and over again. We're going to see this a lot in the Gospel of John. And yet, with Jesus, when we look at him, we always see a single-minded focus. It says in other parts of the book, I only do that which I see my Father doing. He is so connected to his Father. He's constantly getting away to pray. And he's connected to God and, oh God, what, would you, what do you have for me today? How can I obey you today? How can I glorify you today? How can I serve the flock today? Jesus is so focused and he's the only one in this entire book who is. There are a handful here and there. I shouldn't say the only one. There are a small splattering here and there, especially at the beginning, that seem to just have this unwavering intensity. I'm thinking of Simeon. I'm thinking of Anna. They have this absolute immediate faith. This is the Messiah, and they worship accordingly, Mary. Um, But very, very few, even the apostles are, you know, flailing around, and their faith is wavering at times. Uh, But Jesus, he for sure is the one who never, ever forgets why he came to earth. He came to live the life that you and I should have lived, morally perfect, but we didn't live it. And then he came and died the death that we deserve to die for our treason against God. He died in our place, raised to life, and then now offers freely, hey, you don't have to die for your sins by going to hell. I already experienced an eternity in hell in six awful hours on a cross. I did it for you. Just receive it. It's a gift and I'm holding it out. Now receive it. It's yours freely. And and in case you're tempted to take faith and make that a work. Oh, I have to do something. I have to faith. I have to, that's what I have to do. I have to trust. Let me use the illustration of a gift further. When I reach out for the gift, that's evidence of the faith. I believe the gift is there and that it's for me. So I don't get credit for reaching out. The faith was already inside me. That's Ephesians 1, if you want to go study further. We don't get to brag that we had faith and we put our faith in Jesus because even the faith we had was a gift. 
All right. So divided crowd, undivided savior. Four thoughts from the text that we're covering this morning. We're going to be teaching through, we're going to do 25 through 30 this week. 25 through 30. Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? But here he is speaking in public and they say nothing to him. Could our leaders possibly believe that he is the Messiah? But how could he be? For we know that this, where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he will simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he called out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I'm not here on my own. The one who sent me is true, and you don't know him. But I know him because I came from him, and he sent me to you. Then the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Holy Spirit, would you please open our spiritual eyes to what it is you're trying to teach us this morning. Give us soft hearts ready to receive whatever it is you're saying. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen. For you note takers, your first point, what spiritual leaders believe about Jesus really matters. What spiritual leaders believe about Jesus really matters. Look with me again at verses 25 and 26. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's teaching openly at the temple. Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Now, it's really interesting. If you remember from before our series, the people said they did not know, they did not suspect that the Pharisees were trying to kill him. It's because there's a festival. Most of the Jews who are in the city don't live in Jerusalem. They have traveled here for a holy day. And this specifically says the ones who live in Jerusalem, the ones who are around the religious leaders the most, they know that these guys want Jesus dead, that they all want Jesus dead. So everybody who came into town just thinks, wow, isn't this cool that Jesus is here, this great teacher, isn't this awesome? The ones who are locals go, um, I thought they wanted him dead. Why are they just standing there silently letting him teach in the temple? Because if anything, somebody who's uh, claiming to be Messiah and doing miracles left and right, if he sits in the temple and teaches and you allow it, his stock is rising. Does that make sense? I say yes. His star is rising. He's gaining more and more followers. The, the religious elite aren't arresting him. They're just sitting there silent. That's why I've entitled today's sermon, Silent Pharisees. The religious elite who wanted to kill him are sitting there doing nothing. And we're going to talk later about why they are silent. I'll give you a hint if you know the Bible. It's a lot like why were the mouths of the lions shut when Daniel was thrown into their den. It's very similar. Verses 25, and isn't this the man they're trying to kill? But here he is speaking in public and they say nothing to him. Could our leaders possibly believe that he is the Messiah? So as good Jews, they care deeply what their spiritual leaders think and they're sitting there wrestling with this. And then a, a verse later, they're gonna turn the other way and go, no, but how can it be because of this? We'll get to that verse in a second. But it matters what our spiritual leaders believe about Jesus. Think of it, the crowd right now is wrestling because they know where the spiritual leaders stand they have some ideas of what the Bible has promised about Messiah coming. 
It's one of many voices. It's an, it's an important voice, frankly. It's a really important voice. How am I, let's, let's take this forward 20 centuries, here today as a Christ follower, when I am trying to figure out what to do with my world, I'm trying to figure out what to do with work, what I'm trying to do with marriage, what I'm trying to do with financial ethics, whatever it might be, I hope anyway, if we're a strong, tight-knit community, one of the things I'm going to ask myself is, what about the elders and pastors? What would they say about this? And I don't say this by way of rebuke, but I say it by way of warning. If that question never comes into our heart and mind while we are wrestling with the ethics of something, if we never ask ourselves, what do the spiritual leadership of the church think? that might be an indicator that we're not as committed to our church as we think we are, all right? I'm not saying that to shame anybody, but I, do, I just do want to say it ought to be on our mind, okay? It doesn't mean our elders always get it right, our pastors always get it right, but these are people who are working really hard to study the scriptures, to love the God of the Bible, not just learn a bunch of rules, and carefully take care of the flock in trying to teach good, sound doctrine, what spiritual leaders think really matters. Spiritual leaders can lead us astray into lies because they themselves believe lies. They could lead us toward truth of what's good and God-honoring. This matters. This matters a lot. So practical application, one, for the elders, and two, for all of the saints at large. Elders, this is including me, guard your character and doctrine Guard your character and doctrine. That's almost word for word, 1 Timothy 4.16. So Paul told us that. Elders, guard your character and doctrine. Take your character more seriously than you take anything. Saints, pray for your elders and encourage them. Your elders need encouragement. They are being asked to navigate a very crazy world right now on your behalf. And again, this is straight out of Hebrews 13.17. Encourage your elders, saints. It'll be for your benefit. What spiritual leaders believe about Jesus really, really matters. Second, sincere beliefs can be sincerely wrong. Sincere beliefs can be sincerely wrong. Look at me, look with me at verses 27 and 28. How could this be, though? So do the leaders possibly believe he's Messiah? How could this be? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he will simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. All right, my Bible scholars, let me ask you a question. Trivia time. Is that true? If all you have to work with is Genesis through Malachi, the first two-thirds of the Bible, is it true that no one will know where Messiah comes from? Well, I'm going to give you a hint so we save the time. It's not true. Oh, you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are not the least of the cities of Judah, right? So Bethlehem is mentioned uh, when the, the Magi come and find King Herod, assuming that this newborn king would have been Herod's son. They go, uh, okay, so what, huh, what? Where, where's the newborn king? And Herod and all of the officials are upset. And the people who know the Bible go, oh, yeah, Bethlehem. It's not unknown. And frankly, also, 
Galilee of the Nations is mentioned numerous times as well. Um, This was a popular theology that floated around in the first century and, and a little bit before that as well. But just because the idea is floating around does not mean it's in the Bible. Can I get an amen from you guys at home? Can you back me up? There are a lot of ideas that sound really cool or that get repeated. But if we were to stop and take a deep breath, we'd go, is that in the Bible? Really? I don't even feel like uh, naming examples right now because I'm going to just hurt feelings no matter which example I use. Uh, But there's a reason that the Bereans in the book of Acts are held up as a good example. They hear something and don't immediately make an assumption. They carefully search the scriptures to decide, is this true or is this not? Today, we've got sincere convictions that eating healthy will save us. We've got convictions that liberty will save us, or that nations learning to get along with each other will save us, or reducing carbon emissions will save us. We believe that voting a certain way will save us. And no matter how sincere my belief is, it could be sincerely wrong. That's not popular to say today. We love to hold up sincerity as if it's this trump card that if I'm sincere, it's real. And that's simply not true. I can stand at the top of a 10-story building sincerely believing that I can fly, so I tell everyone I'm going to jump, and the authorities are going to intervene right? Because they, they would make a claim toward mental illness or delusion of some type or drug abuse of some type. No one's going to say if somebody about to jump off a building, well, they're really sincere. They believe they can fly. Therefore, everything is going to be fine. No, their sincerity will lead to death. Sincerity, if it is inaccurate, can absolutely lead to death. This crowd right now is getting thrown off when their Messiah is right in front of them. And they're getting thrown off because their Bibles were dusty. ARCF, when Jesus came the first time, the people who were ready for him were the ones that were students of Scripture, that loved the Word of God. Who of us will be ready for Jesus when he comes a second time? Who will be ready? One of the vision statements of our church is that we are being led by God to become a training ground for disciples of Jesus Christ. I want you to think of it like a boot camp. A boot camp isn't there just to be tough and to have standards, although that's all well and good. It's to produce a result, and it's to produce a result inside the person. I'm going to turn you into a soldier, right? I'm not going to just dress you up and give you a gun. That's called playing soldier. I'm going to turn you into a soldier. I've got to get into your thinking. I have to get into your convictions. I have to get into your passions. I need to give you strong relationships with your fellow soldiers. I've got to do all of these things to make you a soldier. We are here to convince every person, every man, woman, and child that says Jesus is Messiah, to convince you that sacrificing day in and day out to get the glory of Jesus Christ out to our world is a worthy cause. It's worth living your life for and giving your life for. That telling people of the love of God is worth bending and shaping all of your goals, all of your dreams, all of your finances, all of your relationships, Because that's what a disciple is. A disciple is trying to become like his or her rabbi. You're not following Jesus like you're following him on Twitter. 
You're actually leaving your nets, leaving your father's fishing business and drop everything and walk and you follow Jesus for the rest of your life. Peter did not follow Jesus for three and a half years. He followed him for a while. Jesus died. Jesus raised. Jesus told Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Right, and feed my lambs, okay? Ascends into heaven. And Peter what? Goes on a vacation? Oh, God, that's over. No, Peter got to work. Peter was still following Jesus. He was doing so this time with the Holy Spirit inside him, which Jesus had told him, when the Holy Spirit comes, you're gonna do greater things than what you've already seen. A disciple never stops following Jesus. And I don't mean to get dark, but it's biblical and I need to be honest with you guys. The New Testament writers say they went out from among us because they were never of us. And I know that's horrifying and I know that's sad, but somebody who seems to walk away from the faith, the New Testament writers said they were never one of us. We just couldn't see it because we're not God. Doesn't mean we don't love deeply the person who left. We love them more than ever. We pray for that person more than ever. We want them to love Jesus the way that we do. A true disciple never stops following. And I want to encourage you in this. When we're watching people miss their Messiah because they weren't students of the word, ARCF, would you join me? Let's make this a training ground for disciples of Jesus Christ. And we could sit here and point toward the children's ministry and say, oh, we should serve, we could help, we should teach, we should teach younger people. None of that actually gets very far if I don't start with myself. I'm gonna light a fire in my own heart and keep lighting that fire of passion for the glory of Jesus Christ. And then that passion can spill over. Would you join me in making this a reality? I think we've all been a part of a church where there was a vision cast and and we're gonna build a, a new education wing or we're gonna start a new ministry. Sometimes the vision is something going on in our hearts going on in our minds. ARCF, would you join me? To like the Bereans, love, hunger and thirst for God's word. I was listening this morning to Brother John Piper who gave a talk two years ago and it was called Five Things I Wanna Say to My 22-Year-Old Self and he was 72 at the time. So he was going back 50 years in his talk and one of the things that he wanted to say to his 22-year-old self was, John, In the morning, if you only have 15 minutes and you can have breakfast or you can read your Bible, read your Bible. Because one of these is going to do more in your life than the other. ARCF, are we ready to skip some Wheaties? Are we ready to skip some waffles if we need to? I was challenged by that idea. I hope you are challenged as well. Let's be men and women of the word so that we are not tossed like babies by every wind and wave of new ideas and new doctrines that come. Third, Jesus was sent by God. False saviors are not. Jesus was sent by God, false saviors are not. How fascinating, verse 28 and 29. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he called out, yes, you know me and you know where I come from, but I'm not here on my own. That's fascinating, right? Testimony of two or more witnesses established inside uh, Old Testament scripture. The one who sent me is true. Sent, 
Hold on to that word. And you don't know him. Uh Uh-oh. Right? Angry Jesus just came out. Well, I'm not going to say he's angry, but he is drawing a line in the sand. You do not know God. He just said that to a bunch of religious types. Oh, my goodness. But I know him because I come from him. Guys, was that a claim to deity or was it a claim to deity? I keep pressing in on this because you went to Sac State or you went to University of Nevada, Las Vegas, or your niece did, or your grandson is going to, and I need to prepare you for the nonsense. People who do not study will casually say over and over again that Jesus never claimed to be God. It is the silliest idea in the whole world because it's so easy to prove wrong. Just open up the Bible particularly the Gospel of John. Open up the four Gospels and read it in plain English, and if you've never read the Bible ever before, you will see clear as day, I know him because I come from him, and he sent me to you. Goodness gracious, let alone all the other I am statements of John. So twice Jesus used the word sent, and this is what I want to drill down on. This is exciting. Jesus was sent by God the Father, and he points over and over to a number of signs. His miracles are there to create faith, not simply to be a blessing to the person who received it, right? We know that's true, otherwise he would have healed everybody. He's trying to show people that he is the Messiah so that we will listen to him when he says, here's how to be reconciled to God. And to the hard-hearted Pharisees, he says, I'm only going to give you one sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. And then he turns and walks away. Unbelievable. Did you just say that to all the pastors? What? Are you going to explain yourself? Yeah, we know the story of Jonah. What are you talking about? He didn't explain it. He died and spent three days in the ground the way that Jonah spent three days and nights inside the belly of a great fish. And then the whale, the fish, vomited Jonah out, a type of Christ, a type of resurrection. And Jesus on Easter morning comes to life defeats Satan's sin and death, is resurrected. And he told them in advance, this is going to happen to me and this is the only sign I'm going to give you. That sounded perhaps like they were getting shortchanged, but let's be honest, resurrection's a pretty good evidence. In fact, it's the best one. If you can raise Lazarus, you must be awesome, but if we're honest, a couple of guys in the Old Testament already did that. So we know he's at least as good as Elijah, That's something. You'd think if the Pharisees had genuinely given him Elijah status, they wouldn't have killed him. So that's a thought. But when you raise yourself, that's different. That is really, really different. Jesus shows that he was sent by God. The false saviors that you and I rely on every day, they're not from God. A loving God does not give false deliverance, false hope. Hey, why don't you lean on money? Money will never betray you. Right? God's never going to tell us that. Why don't you lean on romantic relationship? Why don't you take your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, and put all of your hopes and dreams and shove them onto that person's shoulders? What could possibly go wrong? Right? God's not going to tell you to do that. There is no false Messiah that God is going to send you. God has sent us Jesus because he loves us. He sent us the Messiah who can actually save, not a fake one. And he also says this, John 20, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you, he says to his disciples. 
Is that cool or what? That just means that Merry Christmas is uh, way more powerful than we think. Uh, As a very consumeristic society, we approach Christmas like a child. Yay, I'm going to get something. But Jesus just said, oh, if you're excited about the Father sending me, hold on. Are you ready? As the Father sent me, so I send you. Christian and missionary are the same thing. They're just different forms. I'm a missionary to the person in the cubicle next to me. I'm a missionary to the person on the construction site with me. I'm a missionary in the classroom where I teach. Yeah, the government thinks they have voice, but we know what the Father's going to lead us toward, right? Any opportunity that is possibly given, right? Or maybe I do actually pick up and uproot my life and move to a different state to help start a new church. Uproot my life and go to a different country and help sow the gospel seeds there and establish a new church. How cool is that? As the Father sent me, so I send you. Christmas is not just you receive Jesus. Christmas is Jesus looking at you and me for Christians saying, okay, go. Go. Right? If you've been with us the last year and a half, you've heard that one before. Wait, isn't that one of our core values? Go tell people about Jesus, our fourth core value. That's what Christmas is all about. God gave, and now he has sent us. So the church is now an extension of that gift because we give Jesus through the proclamation of who he is. Fourth, the timing of Jesus' betrayal, illegal trial, torture, and death was chosen by God. The timing of Jesus' betrayal, illegal trial, torture, and death was chosen by God. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Almost 800 years before Jesus was born, one of God's prophets named Isaiah said this, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. 
but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Who's in charge when you read Isaiah 53? Is is Jesus a really nice guy who just caught, caught up in some political winds and he was a victim? Because not only do I think you don't see that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I don't think you could argue any of that from Isaiah 53 either. Look at the back half of verse 6. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. God did it. Let me ask you a really important question. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is important. Does that bother you? Does it bother you that God the Father sent the Son? It's really cute at Christmas time to go, oh, he sent Jesus to us. Jesus was awesome. Jesus forgives our sins. Yeah, how did he forgive our sins though? Good Friday and Easter are how he forgave our sins. And God planned it. He ordained it before the foundation of the world. Does that bother you? ARCF, I've asked you a lot over the last two years whether or not God's sovereignty bothers you because it shows us whether or not we trust him, even when it's really hard. How could a good God do that to his son, Jesus? Some secular philosophers have even gone so far as to call the cross divine child abuse. But I think that when we go there, we are forgetting. We're actually ignoring purposefully that God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are always in perfect agreement, who are eternal from eternity past. The Father initiated and the Son and the Spirit gladly submitted to the plan to save rebellious sinners like you and me. And Jesus shows this in the Garden of Gethsemane the night he was betrayed. And he said, Father, is there any other way? Yet not what I want, what you want. I have a temporal desire as one who took on flesh and is about to suffer horribly. But I have a bigger desire than that, Father. I want to please you. I want to honor you. I want to obey you. And this text, actually along with one in Hebrews, says that Jesus can see past his suffering to what he's going to get. My bride, 10 days ago, just gave birth to a beautiful daughter. A woman knows, if everything goes well, a woman knows 
what she receives on the other side of that pain and that struggle. The scripture says that he could see what he was gonna get on the other side of the pain. Jesus was not a hapless victim. He was not dragged, uh, spiritually speaking, he wasn't dragged in by Herod. He wasn't dragged in by the Jewish priests. He wasn't dragged in by Roman soldiers. He wasn't even dragged in by the Father. He was willingly submitting joyfully to the pain of the cross to glorify the Father and to mercifully save you and me. He wanted it so bad. Isaiah 53 says it. You can see it in the Gospels. The book of Hebrews says it. He paid a high price because he wanted to. He says in the Gospels, I lay my life down and I'll take it back up again. Do you know that Jesus loves you? The Father loves you so much that he sent the Son. The Son loves you so much that he laid down his life for you. The Spirit loves you so much that he empowered Jesus to live that perfect life that you and I needed him to live. It is a triune God that has saved us if we trust in Jesus' sacrifice to wash away our sins. ARCF, any guests who are listening right now, I pray that as the crowd of all of human history is divided, when the crowd is divided, there's going to be one group that decides Jesus is not Messiah. The other group is going to say, I see an undivided Savior. And it is my prayer for you that you take a long, good look at Jesus and his intense passion to honor his Father and love and save you at the same time. That is the trajectory of this book, John. That's where it's headed. It's headed to a horrifying cross, but it is a beautiful cross because of what God accomplishes through it. I'm gonna pray for us. Holy Spirit, would you please save us right now if we do not yet love Jesus would you change our hearts right now by your miraculous and sovereign power? God, for those of us that do not, that already love you, help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, God, as we move little step by little step through the gospel of John. Help us to hunger to see your face more and more clearly that it would manifest, God, in every day, the saints of ARCF loving you more, loving each other better, and especially loving our world, loving our city really, really well in practical ways. Lord Jesus, make servants out of us, not because it just gives a good feelings, but make us uh, servants, God, because we were first disciples through and through, trying to be like our uh, Savior uh, like our Messiah, like our rabbi. Jesus, make us a church family that stands out, that is odd, that is peculiar because we intensely follow our Messiah. We ask for this in Jesus' precious name. God's people said, amen.